Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There are, believe it or not, 33 days to go until Election Day. And if you're following these things, then another 78 days until the inauguration. We are now two days past the first presidential debate, and there's still fallout from all of that. So joining us on the podcast is our former colleague from the Weekly Standard, who is now at the Washington Post and is one of the nation's foremost data nerds, David Byler. You don't mind being called a data nerd, do you? Not at all. And thanks for having me. No, we, we really appreciate it. Because I, I want to talk about uh, the you know what we've learned about the debate and everything. Because I know that on uh, debate night you were very cautious in rushing to conclusions. They they asked uh, you and some of the other folks on the opinion page to to rate the candidates from one to ten, and various people you know made you know well you know Hugh Hewitt said uh, Donald Trump was just awesome, and Jennifer Rubin I'm sure said that he wasn't so awesome. But but you were studiously nonpartisan. You gave everybody a five because you wanted to see actually what the polls showed. So I wrote in my newsletter today that that there's always a tell. And now two days after the 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 debate, I think there's four ways you can tell that Donald Trump lost the polls, the pundits, the cash and the insiders. But you have a piece up today also saying what what you have the the, the sense of 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 the fall. I mean, we, you know, the, the, the first wave of data is in. So David Byler, what is it telling us about what happened uh, on Tuesday night? Yeah, the first wave of data says that Biden won the debate. So essentially, uh, what happened in between me, you know, writing that there are, uh, or writing that each candidate got like a five out of 10 and scoring it as a, I don't know, it's a draw, whatever. What happened between then is that we heard from debate watchers. CNN, YouGov, uh, Data for Progress, which is a sort of leftish firm, mm -hmm. uh, have all come out with various surveys of debate watchers that essentially said by varying margins, Biden won. People were unhappy with the debate, with its tone, with the tenor of it. Uh, they, you know, sort of reflected the consensus among media people coming out of it, which is that uh, this was not a high point for democracy and that Trump lost. See, that's the question. Did Biden win or did Trump lose? Do you have a sense about that? I mean, sometimes the yeah. polls don't really capture that. Yeah. So my sense is that it's much more of a Trump loss than a Biden win. Uh, part of the reason I frame that is because of the state of the race going in with Biden ahead by seven to eight points, roughly nationally. All he really needs to do is run out the clock and hope that there's no sort of grave polling error. So if Trump, you know, goes on uh, interrupting spree and says all these wild things in the debate, and if he's, you know, kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall, and then none of it works, that's time he's burned through. And so that's to Biden's advantage, as long as Biden doesn't, you know, make any big slip ups, which to my viewing, he really didn't on uh, the debate night. Okay, so you wrote something that I thought was very insightful, though, that that a presidential debate is really a multi-part news cycle, you know, one in which the clash between the candidates is just the inciting event. Uh, so uh, you, and you, you point out that that both campaigns do have more opportunities to spin the results in the in the coming days, at least in the first 48 hours, though, the spin has not been Trump friendly. And, and I mean, the, the reason I, I said that was insightful, I, I I watched this before that you watch a debate or watch an event, you might have a certain impression, but the the winner or loser is really only decided in the next day or so, depending on what the what the pundits say, what the spin is, what the uh, you know, what, 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 the, what the narrative has been. And the narrative 
has been pretty negative for Trump. And, and I include the normal Trump friendly narrative, which you can kind of tell doesn't think he won because otherwise they wouldn't be beating up on Chris Wallace and complaining so much about the debate. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The narrative that I've seen coming out of it has been focused on a couple things. It's been focused on sort of the white supremacist proud boy moment that was there. It was focused on the election integrity question uh, that sort of caused all kinds of conflict. And it focused on sort of interruption and lack of decorum. And yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because these debates happen, like you're saying, they're the inciting event. But a lot of people either don't watch the debate or they watch 10 minutes and then they go do the dishes or something along those lines. And what they see is the spin afterwards from both sides. They see the media analysis. They see all of that. And that's looked pretty negative for Trump basically this entire time. So let's talk about this. Uh, going back to your, your your column, both candidates do still have opportunities to spin the results. Um, it becomes more difficult after the first 48 hours. So if Biden wants to solidify this quote unquote win, what does he have to do? Right. So I think Biden has had a really pretty smart strategy for his campaign so far. I think there's two areas that both came out in the debate that I think he would hammer on well. One is sort of the personal, unpresidential aspects of Trump. There's a lot of different ways to ask about this uh, survey. I think I'm going off memory for this one. I think Natalie Jackson, a pollster, tweeted that 70-something percent of uh, Americans wish Trump acted in a more presidential manner. Mm. So these things don't drive big ups and big downs. It's not as if he loses a bunch of voters every time there's a bad tweet and regains every voters every time it's a you know normal tweet or something like that. But I think it affects his resting level. The reason that he sort of sits in the low 40s and has trouble getting out of there it's because of just all of this conduct like you we saw in the debate with all the interruptions with all the you know attacks on Biden's family and things along those lines so that's one thing uh the second thing is that competence matters so you know these these cultural things don't drive the up and downs in the polls but it seems like the competence and the policy issues do just over the whole course of the Trump presidency when he you know seems like he doesn't know what he's doing or he, you know, does something very unpopular on policy, like shuts down the government over a border wall or passes a bunch of legislation that people don't want in terms of, you know, or attempts to pass rather uh, in terms of the health care law in 2017. That stuff just doesn't go well for Trump. So I think the second thing that Biden does is also sort of hammer him on the policies, is hammer him on the things that he does that are genuinely unpopular. If this is a referendum on Trump, then that is a very good position for Biden. Okay. You also uh, warned Biden, though, that Biden and his supporters should also watch out for efforts by Trump and his supporters to get polarization to do their work for them. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what might Trump do to stop this bleeding? Yeah. So if Trump wants to stop the bleeding, I think, uh, well, I think honestly, some of the stuff that he's doing now, it fits that sort of strategy. So uh, one thing would be to focus back in on the judges on Amy Coney Barrett, who uh, is a very popular pick among conservatives, especially sort of conservative activist, uh, you know, uh, class of people. And also to sort of remind uh, Trump voters who they dislike. So I think a lot of the attacks on Chris Wallace have been in this vein. Uh, Trump likes to run as sort of the anti-media candidate. Media is the enemy of the people. And you know what? There are a lot of good criticisms, I think, to be made of a lot of people in the media. 
but that's sort of the the red meat. So one thing that Trump, I think, pr- seems like he's trying right now is to make sure he keeps sort of soft supporters in the fold by playing the hits and then try again next time he's got the opportunity. You also made an interesting point that we don't know exactly what Trump's going to try, but he's but he, when he does it, we're going to know it because he's not really that subtle. Right. <laughs> so um, the most likely thing I would just you know guess is that he's going to throw out more red meat designed to fire up the base and, you know, and to, you know make sure that his supporters aren't uh, demoralized. But um, that's that's that would be a good sign for Biden, though, wouldn't it? If he if he's still if he's still, you know, g- going after his own base. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find the exact right metaphor for elections. But one decent one is tug of war. Right. In the sense that if Biden is going after that middle territory, if he's going after sort of independent voters and swing voters, and if Trump is kind of seeding that ground and he appears like he's trying to just stop the bleeding, then I think that's a that's a pretty telling sign. One interesting thing sort of along these lines that you see as a theme throughout the Trump presidency is that Trump disapprovers uh, really strongly disapprove of him. Like if, if you try to break it out into strong disapprover and weak disapprover, the majority of people who don't like Trump really, really don't like him. Whereas the people who do approve of Trump are a lot more split. There's the, you know, strong, diehard approver base, but there's also somewhat approvers. And these are people who, in theory, Trump could lose. They're people who, you know, might excuse some of his uh, problems and some of his unpresidentialness and some things that they don't like because of issues like judges or because uh, the economy prior to COVID was pretty good. Uh, So I think that what you're seeing right now is a little bit of telegraphing. Biden is telegraphing that, hey, I think I can get these, you know, swing voters to be here because of how the debate went down. And Trump is a little bit trying to sort of reconsolidate, which seems like a good sign for Biden. You know, and, and you point out you probably have to wait a week to really get what the what the fallout's going to be. But um, I'm, I'm I was actually looking for any data point that would say that maybe we're underestimating Trump's success here because I'm I'm at the phase now and I know you do the same sort of thing we're a month out and you know since I've been so dramatically wrong in the past like 2016 I I I ask myself what is it I'm missing what what is it that I'm you know it's out of my you know off my peripheral vision I'm looking at the focus groups and they're showing the same thing that people are going, what the hell was Donald Trump doing? They may not love Joe Biden. They may have thought that uh, Joe Biden was weak, but most of it seems to be they were embarrassed by Trump. I also think it's just fascinating listening to the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and the Fox News folks, uh, you know, Mark Levin and, and others who uh, you would normally expect would be spiking the football if they thought that that that, you know, Trump had done something good. But the real tell for me is also well. There's a couple of others. The the money, um, the, you, you can some as a as a you know a sort of a stand-in for you know actual voting. The, you you can tell who's been mobile, uh, who's been mobilized, who has been uh, jazzed up. I look and the Democratic fundraising, at least by all the reports I'm seeing, has just been through the roof. So this has happened twice, and I'd like to get your take on this. After Amy Coney Barrett act blue pulled in I, I lost track was it 200 million dollars in the Something first few huge. days and then yesterday the, the the democrats are basically saying yesterday was was one of their biggest fundraising days ever so you know that may not that may not be definitive but it's it is revealing isn't it yeah yeah so two things that i think are are interesting to to pull about here the first is on the money i think the the money shows 
enthusiasm, the money shows who is really fired up about this. Uh, I think there's diminishing returns on money. There's only so many ads that you can run. There's only so many things that you can do if you're just sort of flush with cash. And there's going to be, you know, Republican spending cash as well. So that I think that's correct to say that there's definitely something going on with the money there. I, like you, have been looking for signs that this went better than I thought for Trump, uh, sort of positive signs for him. I've been coming up pretty empty. Uh, The survey results, uh, a lot of the actions that the campaigns are taking, uh, I haven't seen much. There's two things that give me a little bit of pause. Uh, One is just the general idea that this debate is not directed at me. My former colleague, Sean Trendy, had a piece on this that, you know, was was interesting and was basically the idea that um, politics now is uh, less directed at sort of the demographic of people who would have a journalism job than it was previously. So, you know, maybe there's something that I I don't understand there. But the other thing that I think uh, matters is that this is lowering expectations for Trump. And it's just a it's the weirdest thing about the American system and public opinion is that expectations actually seem to matter in these debates. If a candidate, you know, uh, comes in and everyone expects them to do wonderfully and they kind of flop, they sometimes really do see decreases in their polling. And the same, the reverse is true as well. If somebody has, you know, a reputation for being wooden and not great at this, and then they have posted decent debate performance, sometimes they can sort of regain ground in the polls. So, you know, the, the silver lining, if there is any for the Trump team, is that expectations are just floor level for him for the second debate. Uh, in theory, he should be able to surpass those. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Well, and the and the other the other tell I was going to mention before is, is also what are the insiders saying? What are you know in in this in the spin room? And it seems that what well it, it seems that they're more anxious to distance themselves from the fiasco. Chris Christie is out there basically saying, "Yeah, it was way too hot." I told him to be aggressive, but I didn't tell him to be like you know crazy. You know, you know, you know, feces flinging monkey crazy. And you're also getting these, you know, reports about uh, uh, rather Republicans being nervous. What is the effect going to be? So that tells me that they think he didn't do that well, uh, you know, either. So you have all of those things kind of lining up the polls, the the focus groups, the pundits, the money, uh, the, these insider accounts all seem to say this didn't go well. And the, the main factor is but I want to pick up on something you said about the money, that there are the diminishing returns. There's a possibility, isn't there, that the South Carolina Senate seat, Lindsey Graham's Senate race, may cost more than $100 million. Okay, I'm not an expert in South Carolina, but how do you spend $100 million in South Carolina? I mean, really, at a certain point, what do you do? Yeah. You know? this is... I mean, there's just so so much television time. There's so many radio commercials you can buy. There's so many Facebook ads you can have. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. I mean, I, I think you're right. There's only so much money you can spend in, you know, a state that is the size of South Carolina, which is a medium ish to small ish state. Um, I think that the, the interesting thing about all this money is that it almost reflects a little bit of uh, a fan culture and politics in a way. Right. Um, because you see this in South Carolina, I think partially because of the presence of Lindsey Graham. There's uh, some enthusiasm around Harrison, the Democratic candidate, but I think a lot of people on the left really, really just can't stand Lindsey Graham. So the money just flows into there. The same thing is true in Kentucky as well. 
A lot of people really, really don't like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. And so his opponent, Amy McGrath, gets loads and loads and loads of cash. Even though, when, she's, even though she's going to lose. Exactly. I mean, that, exactly. That's, that's dumb money. But the Jamie Harrison money might be smart money. That That's true. So it's an <laughs> it, interesting dynamic because essentially what you have in the Senate map is you have sort of two tiers of competitive seats. The first tier is your North Carolinas, your Maines, uh, your Arizona, your Colorado, your Democratic pickup plus close races, right? Um, a lot of those races, I would say three out of the four of them, uh, don't feature the most high-profile people. Tom Tillis is not the most high-profile Republican in the Senate. Uh, but then South Carolina is part of this second tier that's in there with Georgia and Iowa and Texas and some of these other races where in a normal year, a Democrat would have a lot of trouble winning them, but where it's actually possible. And I think you're right to put South Carolina sort of at the the kind of forefront of that second tier and put that as a race that could be competitive. Like South Carolina. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. yeah. Well, amazing. South Carolina, the thing people forget, and sorry, just one last thing yeah, on that. Yeah, but the thing yeah. people forget is that South Carolina is a pretty close state, but it's a very polarized state. It's a huh. state where the Republicans oftentimes don't post sky high margins, but they consistently win. And that's because the basic pattern is racial polarization, where it's an ugly part of our politics, but, you know, uh, the vast majority of white voters vote for the Republican, the vast majority of black voters vote for the Democrat in South Carolina, and it ends up with the Republican winning. But we're getting into such a national environment that even that's starting to buckle a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if, if somebody would have said a year ago that South Carolina would be competitive in a Senate race, I would have thought, what are you smoking? I would like some of that uh, yeah. as, as well. Well, I'd like some of it anyway, right right now. I mean, the fact that we're even talking about Georgia and South Carolina is interesting. The other factor, and it, it, I want to know how, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question like, what do you do all day in a moment? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm working up to this. What, is it, what does a data analyst do and what what they look at? Um, it seems the... The, the one thing that's hanging over all of us is is this calendar now where I, I think of every day at this point is a golden coin. And every day right now that Trump does not win is is one loss. And we're at 33 days. This is really moving quickly. And it becomes much, much harder to turn things around with, you know, losing every single day. I know this seems obvious, but uh, with the early voting. You have millions of people that are already voting. So that whole rhythm of waiting until Election Day has been has been disrupted. So let me just ask you this. So so what do you do all day in terms of looking at the data? Because for non-data nerds, there's a lot of stuff. It's a blizzard and it's very difficult sometimes to factor out what's important, what's not important, what's a quality poll, what's not a quality poll. So tell me, like. What are you looking at? What numbers are you looking at right now that's shaping your view? And what are you going to be looking at over the next week? Yeah, so uh, great question. What I do all day might not be interesting to everybody, but it's interesting to me. So uh, to me. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so the first thing to look at at this point is horse race polls. And the thing to do there is to try to take a smart aggregate. There are public aggregators available like 538, like Real Clear Politics, that do this. Uh, I've got a couple scripts that I run to aggregate polls sort of locally on my own computer. Um, and we're at the point right now where things like the economy and COVID and so on and so forth, they matter, but 
really we're in the stretch run of this thing. We're, we're at the place where uh, public opinion is responding to events, where people are uh, sort of tuning in. And so that's the first thing. Uh, if you had to pick just a couple sort of polls to watch, um, obviously the national polls are a good one. Pennsylvania and Florida are the two far and away most important states electoral college wise. Uh, Biden has a significant lead there. Um, I like to keep a tab on some of these other reach states as well, Texas, Georgia, places along those lines, Iowa, uh, sort of to see how the demographics are moving. Um, if you look at, you know, the upper Midwest as well, some of those states, you can start to keep uh, sort of a bead on uh, white non-college voters, on suburban voters, on what black turnout looks like. You can sort of infer some of these things from what you're getting from the survey. So first thing is just look at all of those, see where those are going. And if you look at the national polls, uh, factor in the idea that Trump has a 50-50 shot if Biden wins the popular vote by two point something points. Um, the next thing to look at, I think- Okay, are, so let me, are, I, I yeah, want to yeah. stop with that. No, no, because that's, that, that is important because there, there are people who go, why do we even look at the national polls? And I think you just identified it. Um, a seven point lead is, you know, does mean something. If it does get down to two points, then we're in the then we're in the really white knuckle phase. So what's the tipping point for you? If if we go into Election Day and Biden is up by X percent, do you think that he's going to win? Oh, great uh, question. Four, so, four or five. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think if it's like five to six or more, that starts to feel more comfortable. I've actually got in front of me uh, like a curve that I generated today off of one of my programs. Basically, what it does is it looks at Joe Biden's win probability at each sort of margin in the popular vote. And so essentially what I'm looking at here suggests, based on my model, which is only one way to look at it, right? There's a bunch of others. But based on what I've, uh, I'm seeing in this specific calculation is that if Biden has between a two to three point chance, he's about 50-50 that chance steeply declines. He's got a lot worse chance, more in probably the 10 to 15% range if it's a four or five point deficit. Wow. And it really, really starts to taper off towards the end. So there really are scenarios where Biden wins the popular vote by five points and Trump's coalition is so strangely shaped that he still manages an electoral college win, right. but he's only even money in the two to three point range. Okay, so let's talk about what you're seeing in terms of the demographics, because at least in the last week, um, the uh, the numbers out of places like Florida and Pennsylvania. Well, let's talk about Pennsylvania, because that's the one that I was looking at the mo most closely. Um, are, we're seeing some interesting things in the movement of the, the demographics, including senior citizens who had supported Trump, but are now moving. Also, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this. Um, some significant erosion in that white base vote for Trump. He's not running up the kinds of numbers that he ran up four years ago. Are you seeing that across the Midwest or are you seeing that across the country? Yes. So okay. uh, this is this is one of the most important trends I think you've ID'd in this uh, race so far, which is that if you look at the polls in Pennsylvania, it suggests that he has that Joe Biden is sort of doing better with white non-college voters than Hillary Clinton was. Uh, and you also see strong poll numbers for Biden in sort of Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota, which are demographically, you know, all fairly similar states. They have their differences, but they all have a solid sort of blue collar white northern population. So that really suggests that Biden has 
eight into Trump's margin there uh, a little bit, enough to open up a significant advantage. Um, what you're talking about with seniors is really, really important too. Um, that matters in Pennsylvania, but it's also a factor in some of these southwestern states. It's a factor in Florida and it's a factor in Arizona uh, because you know those are places where a lot of retirees go and boomers are a lot more into Biden than Clinton for kind of interesting reasons that uh, I think we haven't fully puzzled out. Uh, but yeah, I, th I think the senior thing matters in all of these states, but seniors plus that white working class uh, sort of improvement is really helping Biden out in the states that he needs to win. Yeah, I mean, that and that's what's interesting, how these states correlate with one another. So, you know, for example, when we're seeing numbers out of Iowa, uh, there's a poll. I don't know which which one you think is the most valid, but I mean, that's clearly a competitive state. This is a state mm -hmm. that Donald Trump won by nine points, it should not even be in play earlier the year. He wouldn't have thought it was in play. But that also suggests that if if he's if Biden is doing that well in Iowa, then probably he's going to be doing well in Wisconsin and Minnesota as well, because we're not that different. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah. I've looked into this as well and set up kind of uh, correlations which, with which states are similar to which other states. And you can learn a lot about the upper Midwest from Iowa. You can learn a lot about what's going on in Iowa from Wisconsin. You can learn about what's going on in some of these other Midwestern states from Ohio. And what you see is that some of the states that really jumped to the right in 2016, like Ohio and Iowa, that used to be competitive and flipped back and forth, uh, are now competitive again because of the demographics of Biden's coalition and because of his large national lead. Um, and so you've got this sort of uh, cluster happening in that region where Biden either has an advantage in states that were marginal last time or has kind of brought even states where Trump made his biggest gains and sort of put away last time. So that that upper Midwest region, at least at this moment, is looking pretty strong for Biden. OK, so the, the, the question that, that you and I will get will be people will go, well, yeah, but Hillary Clinton was ahead in Wisconsin. She was ahead in Michigan. She was ahead in Pennsylvania. And look what happened there. Why should this be different? Right. So there's a couple reasons that. Uh, so, so, I mean, there is a way in which that is valid in the sense that we still have over a month to go. And there really is uncertainty around this election. You can't, you know, round a 10 or 20 percent chance of a Trump win down to zero. That was an analytical mistake that a lot of people made in 2016. And it's important not to make it again. So like part of the premise of that question, I think, is good and smart. But there are real differences between this time and last time. Uh, there are fewer undecided voters. There are fewer third party voters. You'll see if you look at the polls uh, from last time that Hillary Clinton's vote share is pretty far under Joe Biden's vote share. In national polls, Joe Biden is over 50 percent right now. So there's that factor of fewer undecideds. There's also sort of people learning from their mistakes, both on the pollster side and on the analyst side, uh, in terms of which polls to stress and which polls to think about. Waiting for education is uh, something that helps out with the accuracy of polling in those states. Uh, the basic idea, without getting too far into the weeds in it, is that white voters who have a college degree and white voters who don't have a college degree used to vote the same way. In the Trump era, they vote differently. So you have to make sure that you have enough blue collar whites in your polls. A lot of pollsters are aware of this now, and they seem to be you know, less willing to do that in 2016. They're more willing to do it in 2020. It doesn't fix all of the problems. It doesn't mean that late movement can't happen. Uh, but it does mean that there are a lot of reasons that this year is different. And we can't automatically expect 
the same exact train of events to come through. You, you know, it's interesting you, you mentioned that. And of course, we are getting deep into the weeds because there was a poll out of Wisconsin showing Biden up by 10 points. And I think it was Dave Wasserman uh, who pointed out that in terms of the education weighting, that 52 percent of the of the sample were non-college educated whites, when in fact the electorate in Wisconsin is more like 57 percent are non-college educated whites. So he suggests a little bit of skepticism about that poll. So that's the kind of wonky um, analysis of the polls that that we have to do, right? I mean, to say, does, yeah. does this really reflect the electorate or is there something off? So let me throw out a term that I, I'm guessing, you know, makes you, you know, spring awake at night and, you know, at 3 a.m. Systemic poll error. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, what, because... I, I hear the, the forecasters and the pollsters go back and forth, you know, and this is, of course, the nightmare is, it, it, you know, there was some some systemic poll error that you just described from from 2016. Um, and I think you, you've answered that, that they've they've gotten better. But what would that look like for you right now? Because I, I ask myself, what am I missing? What am I getting wrong? And so you've got to be asking yourself, well, what if I'm completely wrong? If there is systemic poll error in 2020, what will have caused it will it will it be the failure to wait for what yeah that's a great question so if there's a systemic polling error in 2020 i think there are a couple plausible culprits um one would be late movement like we've talked about people just change their minds towards the end in the polls you know take a while they take a couple days and they're not fast enough to catch it so that's one thing Another is maybe there's some latent factor that we aren't measuring in polling that matters. Maybe there's some feature that isn't captured by age, race, demographic, education, like all the, all these different things right. that uh, cause uh, the pollsters to reach more, I don't know, baristas than construction workers when they're looking for <laughs> white non-college educated voters, right? So there's a possibility of that um, there is a possibility that something else goes wrong in the polls. So we're all very focused on the Obama to Trump voters. Uh, but there's a possibility that turnout is uh, misestimated in terms of black voters or in terms of uh, other different demographic groups that are more favorable to Democrats. I mean, if I'm thinking through what that might look like, um, you know, on election night, say we're watching Florida's results are supposed to come back fairly quickly. If we're starting to see, you know, really great margins for Trump uh, in, you know, areas of Florida that have more white working class voters, if we're starting to see uh, disappointing margins for Biden in areas with a lot of seniors or areas with a lot of Hispanic and Latino voters, uh, then that might tell us uh, to start like, you know, chewing our nails about about systematic polling error. The one other thing that I would say about systematic polling error, though, is that it cuts both ways. Uh, so it's possible that it leads to a Trump win. And I can understand why everyone's focusing on that possibility, because yeah. that would be, you know, it would be shaking the confidence in polls. It'd be another term for Trump, which would have huge implications. But in 2012, there was also a systematic polling error. And it meant that Obama won by more than people thought that he would win by. Yeah. And nobody blinked, right? So it's also possible this happens again. And that in our rush to correct the errors of 2016, all the analysts and all the pollsters and everyone accidentally overcorrect and underestimate Biden. Well, I'm saying to talk about, you know, PTSD, because I remember both of those elections. And in 2012, um, 
over, I mean, Republicans really thought that Romney was going to win that election, right? I mean, right up until the end. I mean, there were a lot of numbers out there, but they'd convinced themselves. And I remember I was on the radio back then, and um, my my friend Reince Priebus was was, uh, was on the line, and, and you know he was, of course, very very close to Paul Ryan, and he was. They were so confident, they were absolutely, and you could tell on election night, um, they were taken completely by surprise, and it wasn't that close. It wasn't that close. So the ability to convince yourself of of something that turns out to be completely wrong, I learned in 2012, but then really dramatically in 2016. So that's why I think it's so hard for people to feel confident, not you, but people to feel confident, even about numbers that look relatively consistent. I mean, you know, this has been a race that Joe Biden has led from wire to wire. I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, in a normal world, he's like seven, 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 seven points ahead. And on election night, he might win by seven points. And we're going to go, wow, that's kind of amazing. But because, right, because we just don't want we just don't want to believe it because of the trauma of the past elections. No, I mean, I think some some amount of doubt is is good. I mean, I'm, I'm it's a it's a challenge at this point, because if you, if you believe like I do, that Biden probably has something between a, you know, 75 to 85 percent chance of winning. That's that's a little bit of a difficult one to communicate around because you really want to emphasize that Biden has the advantage here. But you also need to keep people on their toes about that 15 or 20 percent chance. You know, there's yeah. there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. Well, we so you you have a, your own average. I mean, I, I you I mean, you have what I mean, what do you think the state of the race is right now? Is it is it seven points on on your average? Yeah, yeah. Mid seven, like seven point. I forget what I ran this morning, but it was seven point mid something uh, percent in favor of Biden. Yeah. So you mentioned Florida before, and obviously on election night, we're all going to be watching Florida. Their results tend to come in a little bit early. Right. So mm-hmm. um, Florida still kind of haunts me from 2018 because there was a big polling miss there. Am I I, I misremembering that? Um, Yeah, there was a big polling miss in, in Florida. People thought that, that the, the Democrats were going to pick up the governorship. We're going to reelect their, uh, the, their U S Senate. And uh, that didn't happen. So what went wrong with the polling in Florida? You know, polling in Florida is just a hard enterprise for a couple of reasons. I think you have to be very careful about how you measure Hispanic and Latino sentiment, about making sure that you call the right mix of Spanish and English speaking households. There's that element. It's a state that kind of has basically everything in terms of demographics. So anything that any mistake that you could make could happen in Florida It has a significant uh, black population that you can overestimate turnout among. It has a solid number of non-college educated white voters. It has, you know, seniors, young voters, cities, suburbs. It's, it's, it kind of has everything. So if you make a mistake there, you know, you hope that a different mistake cancels it out and that you still get the right answer. But the other thing about Florida that's just bizarre is that it's just close all the time. You see these other swing states that kind of move with the national environment, right? So we were talking about Pennsylvania earlier. Uh, it's Pennsylvania sits right in the middle of the nation. And uh, because Biden has a seven point advantage there, he's got something like a five point advantage in Pennsylvania, if memory serves. It's it's pretty close to the national environment. Florida's just close all the time. It just, it's, it's weird. Um, so it's also uh, hard because if you're someone who's a pollster who says, oh, I think that the Democrat has 
a plus one advantage in Florida, it's a lot easier to sort of quote unquote call the race incorrectly. I mean, the races that you're talking about in 2018 uh, still kind of burned me up too. When I was running the uh, weekly standard Senate forecast, that was like the one race that was like really pretty off. I feel like the rest of them, you know, the model did a good job, but that one, it thought that, you know, Nelson had a 80-ish percent chance of winning and then Scott won anyways. So there's a lot that can go wrong in Florida. And it's kind of, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it reports so fast in election night because it's going to be just such a helpful cue for figuring out who's actually going to win when we get this, you know, long slog of vote counting. Yeah. I mean, and, and speaking of states that we, you know, used to be the bellwether, um, kind of a surprise this year that uh, Ohio seems mm-hmm. to be in play. Well, let me ask you, do you think that Ohio is really in play? I do. I mean, I is, do. is Ohio now back being a swing state? Because it wasn't even close last time. Yeah. So the the way that I would put it with Ohio is that there's a difference between swing state and tipping point state. So swing state, hmm. definitely, okay. yes. It's a state where it's competitive, where Biden seems to really have a chance, where his ability to do pretty well uh, with both suburbanites and sort of white non-college voters matters. Uh, I don't think it has a great chance of being the tipping point state. And what I mean by that is uh, there's one state at the end of the election that delivers vote number 270 for the winning candidate. That's the state that they needed to get. Everything else that they got past that is icing on the cake. And everything below that is sort of the foundation that it's built on. So in 2016, that was Pennsylvania, right? Uh, Trump didn't need Michigan to win. That was icing on the cake. He needed Ohio to sort of get up to that 270 mark. So in 2016, that was Pennsylvania. In 2020, I don't think Ohio has a big chance of being the tipping point state. I think that if Biden is winning in Ohio, then he's probably already got the 270 he needs. And if Trump wins Ohio, he's just not all the way there yet. So you wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago um, that said there was a possibility that that this could be an electoral college landslide for, for Joe Biden. Yeah, this is the other side. So uh, one thing that you learn when you're doing election modeling is that uh, the errors go both ways, that it's a it's a two sided distribution to use the real stats term. And what, what that means is that, yes, there is a chance that things move in Trump's direction and that the polls underestimate him and all of those things are completely possible. But if you try to guess which way the polls are going to air, it's like the universe always, you know, shuts you down and ends up making them air in the other way. That, that's just how it feels when anyone ever tries to predict where the error is going to go. So uh, the way that you build models is you put a second side to it. You put sort of a flip side to it. And the flip side of Trump having a chance to win is that Biden has a chance at landslide. There are maps where Biden wins Texas, where he sweeps through all these swing states, and he's getting upwards of 400 electoral votes, where Democratic uh, senators are sort of in the mid-50 count by the time this is over, where the House, I mean, people aren't really thinking about the House, but where that's a total landslide as well, and where this just goes south for Trump and the wheels come off. That's kind of the flip side. Uh, Where exactly you peg landslide differs from person to person, but I think it's fair to say that Biden has as much chance of a really historic landslide as Trump does of winning it with the Electoral College. You know, and that, that's why I was mentioning Ohio, because if, if you start to see 
Biden winning places like Ohio and Iowa, you know that you're at least running up the score in the upper Midwest. Then it, then it's pretty much over. But you're right. I mean, if if early in the evening, it looks like Biden might win a place like Georgia as well as Florida, then we're looking at some pretty big numbers. Un- unlikely to happen. Um, but it, it certainly is is possible. And I think your piece was uh, very eye opening. David Byler, thank you for joining us. We had so much fun back in 2018 doing your your your, your Senate predictions. And I, I know we're both haunted by the Florida thing, um, but you pretty much nailed all of those. We wanted to have you back on the podcast. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. And you can read David uh, Byler's stuff at The Washington Post, where he is an opinion writer and data analyst. Uh, Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again. And there are just 33 days to go until Election Day.